Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to John, John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we're going to jump back into our study in the Gospel of John. Pick up where we left off two weeks ago. I thank the Lord for Matt being able to stand in for me last week. Um, I want to thank the Lord for health and uh, raising Amy and I up from COVID. I know it's going around. Some of you have had it again. and Kind of not a fun one, but... Uh, God is good, and so it's good to be with you today. Thank the Lord for his healing hand. You know, we sang a lot of kind of those traditional Thanksgiving hymns today, didn't we? We gathered together um, thinking about harvest. And, you know, we, another thing that we take for granted in America um, is just the easy availability of food, right? I mean, we have, we have you go to the grocery store, man, there's just food. And uh, you can buy it, and you know we can get oranges and whatever we want this time of year from wherever it comes, you know, and it's available to us. And uh, what a blessing it is to be able to eat the way that we can. And so I thank the Lord for that as well. There's so many things to be grateful for. You know, when we think about the Thanksgiving season, it's a reminder to us again. Uh, you know, Lori mentioned America's the greatest nation on the planet. And um, God has given us a nation that was founded on a search for religious freedom. And so, you know, those Puritan pilgrims who came to New England and settled in tremendous hardship and uh, left us a legacy that we can be so grateful for. Um, I don't know if, you, if you've never read the book by William Bradford on Plymouth Plantation. You ought to buy it. You ought to read it. You ought to get it on Amazon. You know, it's written in Old English, so it's a little bit hard to stumble through parts of it. But to read the difficulties that they went through in hacking out a country um, in the wilderness, showing up at a time of year when it was tough, and, you know, half of them perished in the first winter that they were there. Um, if you've never sat down and read the Mayflower Compact, you need to do that as well. You know, these things sometimes aren't being taught to us today in, in, in school, but we need to remind ourselves of our roots and what God did in raising up a nation here. And so we are truly, truly grateful to him. We're going to read in John chapter 8, but before we do that, would you just join me in a word of prayer and ask the Lord's blessing as we just, all we're going to do today is just going to open up the book and we're just going to study it. Okay, so we just do what we do every week. Um, it's not rocket science. It's not a lot of flash and bang, but we're just going to take God's word. And I just want to pray that God opens his word to our hearts and we can just understand what God is saying to us here in his word in this text that he and his providential sovereignty has put before us for this day. Let's look to him. Father, we thank you for your word. We're going to talk about this verse a little bit later in the message when you said, Lord Jesus, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Lord, our world is full of the lies of Satan. Ever since he came to the woman in the garden and sowed a seed of doubt in her mind and said, has God really said, you shall not eat 
and he insinuated against your very goodness, dear Lord, ever since that original lie, this world has been permeated, this culture is permeated with falsehood. I thank you that you have given us a book that we carry with us that is not just partially true or about truth. It is the embodiment of truth. We can build our lives upon it. I ask, dear Father, that you would bless us as we open your word, as we study it together for these few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to start reading in verse 31. Uh, Let's just set the stage again. You remember in chapter 8, the chapter begins with a woman taken in sin. She's fallen into adultery. There is a test that is placed before Jesus there. The men who bring this woman to Jesus do not do so uh, with any intent that true justice happens. They are simply using her as a pawn to get at Jesus to try to make him stumble. And then from that, Jesus begins to teach them about who he is again, presenting himself to them as the light of the world. When we get to verse 31, we left off in verse 30 two weeks ago. In verse 31, it says this, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. Now notice that phrase. He is talking to some Jews who have heard what he said and they believed in him. If you abide in my words, then you are really my disciples. Notice that, if you abide, if you remain, if you stay, if you persevere, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? I just want to take a minute with that because obviously they are under a yoke of Roman oppression, right? And since the year 722, when the Assyrian armies marched into the northern kingdom, and then in 586, when Babylon comes and takes Judah, I mean, think about that. Six, seven hundred years. Before Jesus, the Jewish people as a nation ceased to exist as an independent political entity. For a short period of time in the intertestamental period, under the rule of the Maccabees, the Jews once again kind of resurge into a kind of quasi-independence. But then Rome marches on them, and politically they are thrown back under Rome. The temple is destroyed in 70 AD. Jerusalem is obliterated. In that period of time, the Jewish people are dispersed. And it's not until 1917, under the Balfour Declaration and the British Mandate, that the Jews really are given some kind of freedom to be able to begin to return to Israel. 
to the land. And then in 1948, they declared themselves a state. And we know what's happened since 1948, ever since that declaration, continual wars, as it prophesies in the book of Daniel, when Daniel said, and until the end there will be wars that are determined against your people. I mean, Daniel said that hundreds of years before any of this transpired, and he said this, right? Until the time of the end, wars are determined against your people. That's exactly what we see. But during all of this time, the Jewish people have been politically enslaved. And they here say, we are the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. And what do they mean by that? Well, they're not dumb. They know what it is to be politically enslaved. They know what it is to pay taxes to Rome when you don't want to pay taxes to Rome. So they're not talking here about some political type of arrangement that they are under. They were obviously saying, no, because we are the sons of Abraham, we have a freedom of spirit that nobody else has. And so they are talking deeper. They're not just talking about the physical world, they're talking about spiritual realities when they are talking to Jesus. So they say, how is it that you say we will become free? Because in their mind, they are free because they are the offspring of Abraham. And I want you to notice the word offspring. Jesus says to them, oh, okay, you gave me an open door. Let me give you a further thought. Truly, truly. Notice that again. Amen, amen. We've seen that phrase time and again as we've gone through the Gospel of John. It is the only book in the Bible where that phrase is used repeatedly. And John uses it from the mouth of Jesus to explain to us the solemnity and the veracity of what Jesus is about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone, notice the word everyone, not just the Gentiles, my friend, even you Jews. Everyone who practices sin is the slave of sin. And the slave, does notice this word, does not remain. Now remember the word remain was just up earlier in verse 31 when he says, if you remain in my words, you are truly my disciples. Same word. The slave does not stay in the house forever but the son, because he is an heir, it is his house, he stays forever. So if the son who stays forever in the house, because it is his house, so if it is the son who sets you free, then indeed you will be free. I know you are the offspring of Abraham. Yet you, and he's talking, remember, who is he directing these words to in verse 21? Jews who have believed in him. He says, I know you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do 
what you have heard from your father. Now, who are they thinking? Who is their father? Who's the father of America? Right? George Washington, we think in those terms. So when he says here, you do what you have heard from your father, they are thinking in the terms of what? They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's, I want you to notice the next word. This is very specific in the original. He does not say offspring. He switches. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works Abraham did. Jesus uses a change in words to draw attention to a spiritual reality. You can be the offspring of Abraham, physically descended from him, and you may not be his child. Because Abraham is the father of those who what? Believe. And by their faith, righteousness is imputed to them. So Jesus says to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who told you the truth. Remember, it's the truth that sets you free, not lies. Lies only bind, don't they? Lies put us in bondage. Truth sets us free. And I told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not, this is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, now they're casting this insinuation back to him, and I think somewhat because they're putting in a jab going back to his pardon of the woman taken in adultery that he just did. They say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So what are they doing? They are insinuating against his pardon of the woman taken in adultery and basically saying in an insinuation, you were soft on her because your mother was an adulterer and you were born in sexual immorality. That's the insinuation. You're a bastard. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? This is an important verse. We're going to come back to it in a minute. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Now he tells them who their father is. There again, remember verse 31. Jesus said to Jews who had believed in him. You see that? So he's not talking to a bunch of people who have outwardly rejected him. He is talking to some people who have believed in him. And he says what to them? Knowing their hearts. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the start. From the beginning, it does not mean he, was be, he began in sin, that he was made in sin. No, Satan fell into sin, but
but from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, he was the original murderer. He does not stand in the truth. He's not there referring to just Cain, that he tempted Cain and Cain became a murderer. Satan is a murderer of who? The entire human race. The entire human race was murdered by Satan because of the temptation that Eve believed and falls into sin and death came by sin. And so he is a murderer from the beginning. I mean, he is the mass murderer of all mass murderers. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and he is the father of all lies. There again, going back to the beginning. But because I tell the truth, you don't really believe me. Now, you say you believe me. That's what's going on in verse 31. You say you believe me. But because I tell the truth, you do not really believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sins? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? It's a good question. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. Okay, there's a lot there, and we're not going to get through it all today. I'll just warn you now. But we're going to start in verse 31. That's really what we're going to key in on as we do a little bit of other homework, bringing together some thoughts here this morning to think. Now, if I were to ask you today, if I just said, okay, let's take a few minutes and let's, let's get some input from the crowd, and I said to you, what is the essence of being a Christian? What is the mark of a true disciple? I'd get a lot of different answers. What is the essence the mark of a true disciple. I think what we're going to see in this text, it is this, a true disciple remains. A true disciple stays. Notice with me verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you remain, that's the word abide. If you remain in my words, you prove yourself to be truly a disciple. The mark, the essential mark of a true disciple is he remains. Now, if you went to 1 John, and we don't got the time to do it today, but if you went to 1 John and you read through 1 John, he's going to show a lot of characteristics of a true believer. Tons of characteristics. And we could list them. And those true characteristics of a believer essentially fall under some categories, and that is this. A true disciple, a true believer, loves, because love is of God. A false believer 
someone who is still enslaved to sin, their life is dominated by what he refers to as hatred. Why is there so much hatred in the world? Because this world is what? Under the dominion of who? Satan. That's why hatred is rebound. Now, that doesn't get on CNN. You know, people all the time, man, why does everybody hate each other? we got to quit hating each other. You know the only way we're going to really quit hating each other is when there is a reformation of true character because the Son of God reforms the heart of human beings because men are born again. Because love is of God. And you can't just manufacture that. That's the whole point. But if we looked at this, we would say there's a lot of characteristics of a true disciple. He's gaining victory over sin, all these kind of things. You see that in 1 John. But what we see here is the essence of true disciple is this. No matter how many times you kick a Christian in the teeth, he's still a Christian. He endures. He remains a Christian. Nothing can take that out of him. To whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so the essence of true discipleship is this. You stay a Christian. It doesn't mean you never sin. You do sin. You do sin every day. I sin every day, right? We fail. We, 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 we don't do the very things that we love. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. The things that we hate sometimes we do. And there's this war going on in our nature between the old man and the new man, between the spirit and the flesh. But at the end of the day, a true disciple remains a true disciple because the spirit of God is within him. And he just keeps plugging along. A righteous man tells us in the book of Proverbs, falls seven times. And he just stays down in the gutter. Now what happens? He gets up again. A righteous man falls seven times and he gets up again. He keeps getting up and he keeps following Jesus because to whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So what we're going to see in this text is the essential mark of a true disciple is he stays. Because a true disciple has come to know the truth. Now, when you see the word know, that's what he says in verse 32. You shall know the truth. That word in the original language does not mean you will know it here. That's not what it means. It is an experiential term, speaking of relationship, speaking of an understanding that goes into the depth of our being and into our heart. It is a realization of life. It's not just knowing facts. It is knowing someone. Because you will know the truth. Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth. I am the truth. Because a true disciple has come to know the truth. And that truth has set him free. He then perseveres in following Jesus. It's not because he's so good. It's not because of the strength of his character. It's because of the spirit of God who now lives within him. We want to develop this. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, verse 6 says this. Paul says, of the church in Philippi, he says, I am confident of 
this very thing. That the one who began to do a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day when Jesus returns. Paul says, I am confident of this. He's not worried about it. He says, I am confident that the one who began a good work in you will finish it. I love pastoring this church. I, this is the greatest church on the planet. And I don't say that to just puff you up. I say it in truth. I am so thankful for this church. But it's not my church. And it's not my work. And it's not Matt's. It's whose? The Lord's. And Paul says here, I am confident that the Lord, Paul planted that church. Paul loved those people. And yet Paul says, I am confident that the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who began the work in your life. So when that Philippian jailer says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? I'm ready to kill myself. I'm going to fall on my sword because I think everybody got out of the jail. And he's ready to end it all and commit suicide because he does not want the Roman authorities to cut off his head. He says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and so will your household and everybody else in this town. And a church is planted. Paul loved them people. But Paul says, I am confident that the one who began the work, he will carry it to completion. You're in the Lord's hands. And the Lord will take you to his eternal kingdom and present you faultless in his presence with great joy. Okay, let's look at a chain of verses. Look with me first of all at verse 12. This is all homework to get us where I want to go. In verse 12, Paul said, or excuse me, Paul, I'm talking about Paul, I got to go back to Jesus. Jesus spoke to them, said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. That started this whole discourse. Jan Moore gave me something this morning. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I talked about um, olive oil and little lamps. We talked about what was there in the temple at the time, and that was a 75-foot tall at, at the Sukkot um, festival, the, the festival of booths. But then we also talked about little lanterns. Jan, you got this? You said Nazareth? But this is what they were like. You know, I mean, think about how nice it is to turn on your lamp in the house, you know, and you got light in your house. This is what they had in the ancient world, something like this. It was olive oil and a little wick, and you lit it, and it was probably not much better than a nightlight, right? Just a little thing, and it sat on the, on the table, and it put a little bit of light in the house, and, um, you know, that, that's what they dealt with. We, light at night is a blessing to us that there again we take for granted that most people in human history knew nothing of. This is the kind of stuff that was used to light their home. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world. It's a dark world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. If you will follow me, you will have the light that leads to life. Then when we got to verse 30, after saying that, Jesus is talking to some people who have now made an outward profession of saying, we believe in you, right? They have, with their mouth, in some way, 
indicated to Jesus, oh, you got to be the Messiah. We believe in you. So then Jesus says, okay, this is how Jesus starts his discipleship class. New believers, right? New believers. Where's Jesus going to go with new believers? Pat you on the back, group hug. Woohoo, I'm glad you're in. How did Jesus go at it? I mean, he goes at it pretty hard, doesn't he? Jesus goes into it in verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if. Well, Jesus is saying what? Well, we'll really see. Time's going to tell. Just like what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus told the parable of the sower. And some of the seed fell on hard soil, but some of it seemed to indicate that there was life because it fell into some rocky places or some weedy soil, and it began to grow, but then it got choked out and it died and it never brought forth fruit. But some seed fell on good ground and brought in a harvest. It remained. It remained until the harvest. So Jesus says to these people, okay, well, time will tell. And time does, doesn't it? Time does tell. If you stay. You stay. Now, I'm not saying you stay in this church. God may have you go somewhere else. Something may even happen to you and you get crossways with me or Matt or somebody else in the church, you know, steps on your toes when they're going down the pew and kind of upset and you got to go somewhere else or whatever. Okay, I get it. If somebody steps on your toes and you say, well, I'm done with the Jesus thing, well, what does that say? Amen. If you abide, if you remain in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse 43 Remember the word, he's using the word here repeatedly. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear something in your heart that's not right. and You cannot bear to hear my word. And then he says in verse 47, whoever is of God... Here's the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now, I want you to notice the phrase, this prepositional phrase, of God. This is the word theos. This word of is a Greek word, ek. Prepositions in the Greek language, I'm not going to give you a big lesson in Greek, but I will give you a brief one. Prepositions in Greek always exemplify movement. When he says you are not of God, he's not saying, let's, let's, this is God. He's not saying you are of God like you are just from him in the sense of next to him. The word ek speaks of out of. Okay? So you could really, so it's like out of out of God. 
And the reason that is important is in 1 John, that word is used all the time to talk about the new birth, being born again. That we are born out of God. We are his child. By the Spirit of God, we are born again. We are out of God. And so we have his very character within us because of his spirit. Now, having said that, there are four key words to understand. Okay, we are talking about a doctrine in Scripture we are going to call the perseverance of the saints. We're talking about, and I'm going to give you four words real quick. I want you to remember them. Number one is perseverance. This means to remain or to endure. Come back to that in a minute. Now, why do Christians persevere? Oh, it's because we're so good. And we have so much faith. Is that why? No. Why do Christians persevere? Because God preserves us. Do you remember in the old days when your mom put up preserves? Right? She made jam. She preserved something. The reason the Christian perseveres is not because of our own effort. It is because we are preserved by God. We are kept. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it tells us that specifically. We are kept by the power of God. The third word is eternal security. Because we are preserved and thus we persevere, I am eternally secure. I don't have to go to bed at night and worry about whether I lost it. I am secure. When I understand these truths in the Bible, the Bible is full of this truth. When I understand that, it gives me, and this is our last word, an assurance. Now listen. You may be sitting out there and truly be a disciple and truly have believed in Jesus. And yet, because you don't understand this stuff, you're like a storm-tossed sea and you're always scared to death that you lost it. And you have no assurance. What God wants us to come to grips with is what he teaches in his word about these things so that we are assured. Now, that does not mean that we are then apathetic. But it gives me a settled assurance that if I died today, John said this, he wants me to know that I have eternal life. He wants me to know that. And that word know is not up here, it's here. The same word it said when you know the truth, it will set you free. He wants us to know it. Now, I'm going to say there are a lot of things that we are that we are a product of the way we were raised. Okay, not every church is going to teach you that you have eternal security in Christ. If you come from a Roman Catholic background, you may be scared to death you're going to purgatory. There's no such a place. No such place. The only people that the Roman Catholic Church feels comfortable saying are in heaven are who? 
the saints. They're the only people that the Roman Catholic Church has said, these people we know are in heaven. So in the Roman Catholic faith, there's no understanding of eternal security. If you come from kind of a Wesleyan or Arminian background, and maybe tied to that is some Pentecostal holiness movements, there's not much understanding of this eternal security. Um, Arminian dispensationalism, which is kind of your Baptist types, a lot of those Baptist types did not traditionally teach this the way we understand it in Scripture. They taught part of this, but not all of it, and thus, because of that, many times it was misunderstood. It's really the Reformed Protestants and the resurgence of that that have really, really been the ones who have been able to elucidate clearly from the Scripture why the Bible teaches eternal security. Why is this an important doctrine? Well, number one, because it's in the Bible. Okay? Because I think it's completely biblical. So it is important because the word is true. Secondly, because it is a source of rich comfort and rest. For a believer to know that we are not saved by our own efforts and we are not kept by our efforts. We are secure in Christ. The key word is the word remain. To remain. Now I want to just show you some related scriptures where this really plays out, and then I'm going to quit. And I'm just going to kind of quit this morning. I'm not going to give you a big story or anything like that. We'll just get through this and we'll quit. But I want you to see these verses. Matthew 10, 22. Who will be saved? He says, you will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who remains. The one who remains. That's the one who will stay, who will be saved. Jesus says the very same thing in Matthew 24. Because lawlessness will multiply. Man, that's the day in which we live, isn't it? And because of that, because that happens, because lawlessness is abounding in our land, what does it do? The love of many grows cold. But who will be saved? The one who endures. James 5, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. Who are blessed? Those who stay. Those who stay in Christ. 1 John 2, this is an important one. They, he's talking about people who have professed Jesus, they went out from us. Okay, there again, notice out, they left, they went out from Christ, but by going out from Christ, they revealed what about themselves? They never belonged to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have what? remained. However, they went out so it might be made clear that they never belonged to us. Why do people profess Jesus and then abandon Jesus? Because they never belonged to Jesus. They were never truly born again. Mike read this scripture and we'll just close with it. How blessed is the man 
who remains. And he stays what? Under trial. For after he has stood the test, because what is the trial doing? The trial is testing him. See that relationship? Why do trials come in your life? Count it all joy, my brethren, when you what? Encounter many trials. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces endurance, remaining. How blessed is the man who remains when he is tested, because after he stood the test. Why does God bring trials? To see if you stay. Because if you remain, that's why he says in Hebrews, the one whom the Father loves endures, remains when he is chastened. For after he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. This isn't like when you get at the at the Bema Seat of Christ, the judgment, an angel's going to come to you with a crown and it's going to say on it, crown of life. No, what he's talking about is this. We receive the crown of all that we desire. Life. Life. And so those who stand the test will receive as a gift the crown of life, which the Lord has what? Promised to those who love him. So as we said, the distinguishing mark is to remain, but the characteristic is love. You cannot be a Christian and not love Jesus. Boom, end of the matter. You cannot. If you do not love Jesus, I can say to you, you are not a Christian. Because those who love him, there is a change in our heart. We will not love him perfectly. We will love him as did Peter in John 21. But to be a Christian is to love Jesus. Let's close. Thank you for your word, for your truth. Your word is truth. Lord, sanctify us. Separate us to yourself. Sanctify us by thy truth. Your word is truth. Lord, I thank you for the truth. I pray that you would take your truth. Help us that we may hear it, that we may receive it, that we may re be, be changed by it. And prove ourselves to be of God. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of your spirit who lives within us. And so we pray in Jesus' name.